lot happening in the world as well, like at the same time. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I just kind of feel unmotivated, and、uh, I don't know. I just finished a book too, so there's that, and, and I was finishing that at the beginning of this. So I'm not sure, but I've started writing again, and now I'm I'm actually doing short little pieces, maybe to do. I don't just for no reason. I've been doing like two page strips and one page strips just for fun, like which is something I never do. I always work on my next book. It's kind of feels like back when I was a kid again, just doing things for no reason, which is kind of fun. Sounds like a, a positive that you're actually like making art for the the pure enjoyment of making art. Exactly, yeah. Which is is it, kind of、um, I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of different. Return to. Your youth, you know, which is nice. I mean, otherwise, in in a normal year, are you basically just kind of tied to a book schedule? Is it when when you sit down and work on something, it's because it's clear that you've got some sort of long form piece on the horizon? Usually, yeah. Usually, I I, I finish a book and then I'll sit down and I'll do、uh, a couple of months of like just reading and just debriefing, kind of, and then and then it usually it's I've already formulated kind of what my next thing might be. And, I, and then after a couple of months of just goofing off, I start to get down to work. And I don't know if it's like my old factory worker instincts, but I'm like I'm a bit of a workaholic, and、uh, so I I just like when I'm not at my outside job or doing freelance stuff, I I just work like from when the kid would go to school, I'd sit down at eight thirty and work till. You know, the kid came home. I'd make dinner, hang out with the family, and by nine thirty, I'm back down there in the basement working till eleven thirty, twelve at night, and that's a regular, normal thing for me. And I, I like it because I enjoy it, but it's probably too much. It's bad. It's like I started to get a, a screwed up shoulder because of like sitting so much. I went to an osteopath, and they they were like, "So, how, do you do anything repetitive?" And I go, "Like,、oh, how, how how long do you do that?" And I go. I don't know, twelve, fourteen hours a day, and they're like, "Oh my god!" And then they're like, "How do you sit?" And I was like, "Kind of like like this, you know." I'm hunched over, and they're like, "You're doing everything wrong." So they gave me some exercises and like just to tell you to take breaks, like it, and that's really that's changed a lot.、Uh, like just just not continually doing it and just hunkering down, listening to audio books when I'm drawing, and. Just being lost for hours and hours. Have you read that Creota book that she put out about?、Um... Oh, yeah, I, well, I have it, and I've looked through it. But like, I mean, I, I'm an unhealthy person. I, I, you know, I, I should read that and I should follow it because, like, Creota's like she's obviously, you know, really studied this and 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 it's concrete ways to improve your your health if you're an artist. So,、um, yeah, it's on the shelf. I have to read it. <laughs> You know, I gave up coffee two weeks ago because I was just like at a point where I was drinking six cups a day, which is too much. So I just quit cold turkey. And I'm definitely somebody who operates in the extremes when it comes to things like that. You know, I, I've noticed that this book deals with alcoholism to some degree, and your past books have deal, dealt with alcoholism. And I've heard you describe this in an interview where, you know, when it comes to that, you you're kind of an all or nothing kind of person. Yeah, my my wife describes me as an all or nothing with everything, and I'm a bit of a mental case about that. Like, um, so yeah, when I was drinking, I drank a lot all the time, and probably dangerously so. And I I always shied away from ever saying, you know, that I was an alcoholic, but I'm pretty sure that I was. Technically, I was. Yes. So I I um I had eased off things. I I never drank when I was younger. I was like a, a moderate my whole life, and then my first marriage fell apart. 
like after 14 years. And I literally, it was like a switch turning and I became a drunk. And uh, for years I was that. And uh, so, and you know, it, it's part of your identity uh, when that's what people know you as like, you're the guy that drinks the most. And uh, he's, the, you know, and I was that. And, um, and then I'd, I'd eased off, but I still drank a lot. Like I would work at night and I would have, a, I would have, you know, either single malt or bourbon there. And I just, I have my little special glass and I'd all night I'm sipping and sipping, you know, um, much less than when I was in my heavy drinking stage, but, um, it was too much still. So I, I, uh, there was one new year's, I just said, I'm going to, I'm going to try and quit for a year. And it was this radical thing to do. And, and then I realized after I got through the, the hard part of that, which is the first couple of months, drinking a lot of club soda and in and, and, and fancy glasses, you know, to try and distract yourself. Um, I got through it. And then I felt like after a year of it, I was like, I kind of like this. I, you know, I saved a lot of money. I was functioning better. I was drawing better. The first book I drew without booze was the Seabrook book, which is ironically about a massive lifelong alcoholic. Um, and I, I, um, I found it was, it looked better. It was a better end product. It was less goofy, less, um, less, you know, weak drawing. I think that was one of my strongest drawn books. So, um, so I just stuck with it. I think I've been like nine years off the sauce and, um, I still like it. I mean, I miss the idea. Like I, that was, I think that that's the hardest part, reinventing yourself for one. And secondly, um, just saying goodbye to something forever. Like that, there was like, you know, uh that was a big old thing to do uh but ultimately good i quit drinking a couple of years ago as well really just to kind of try it out <laughs> to see if it took um you know and i i've never i never said forever you know i i was something i was trying out and it's been i guess like two years this past month and i i actually i i don't think that i necessarily had a problem i just i just wanted to see like you know what life would be like without it i don't know i maybe maybe it builds up gradually but you know i when i start to do something i i become very intense about it and, and work is definitely similar i mean do, do you think that with your own personality type that there are some parallels there it's definitely a problem with me like i'm like um I do have those impulses to uh, do things to extreme, either all or nothing. And it's, it's unhealthy. And it's like, my wife's like, you know, always a middle path, like, like, and it's wise to be that way. And I, I, I try and be that way. Um, I'm, but I'm, I'm less successful. I think with booze, it's probably good to not try. If you've had a past uh, experience of, you know, problems with it, you do the middle path really for most people. So, and that's fine. Like, I mean, it was like my friend Billy told me when, and I said, you know, Billy, I'm, uh, I'm never going to drink again. That's a, he goes, oh, Joe, you drank enough. He goes, you had a good run, you know? And it's like, it's true. I really did. Uh, so I can't complain. But yeah, with work, yeah, I would say that again is unhealthy. Uh, I, I would not spend as much time like reading or doing other things. I mean, it didn't, I, I didn't distract from my family life because, you know, I would meet up with my wife at like after, you know, at 1130 or whatever, we'd watch a movie or whatever. But and, you know, I spent time with my kids and all that, but there's definitely a weird uh, compulsion to work too much. But it's a common thing with, with cartoonists. And I'm glad some of the younger cartoonists are, are rejecting that, that, that work ethic, that dumb macho work ethic. And I think that's good. Macho is an interesting way of, of putting it. But, you know, but I, I do think that when it comes to something like not just being a cartoonist, but actually putting out 
you know, graphic novel or a full length book, there is perhaps a net benefit at the end of the day to really throwing yourself into a project. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's enjoyable. Like, I mean, I love it. And I, I get, I get so, you know, into it and like seeing the stack of pages growing. And I, I always, I guess, again, like it's because of like, like a work ethic thing that I have to go at the end of the day, the last thing I do is I look at what I've done that day and I, I have to look at it and then I feel good if I've accomplished something. So, and I don't do that when I'm in my goofing off stage, I, I have nothing to look at at the end of the day. And I kind of, you know, it's kind of disappointing. Um, I guess I need to look for self-worth in other ways than, than in my work at the end of the day. You know, I guess that's, that's, that's what it comes down to really. I talk to a lot of people who make comics obviously, and Anyone who's going to like write a book or, you know, make a full length graphic novel, it just seems like such an insurmountable task to me that it's something that I don't think you can really finish unless you're driven in that way. Yeah, you do have to be somewhat driven. That's for sure. And I think I think people that don't do it um, are really like when people talk to me, they look at a book and they're like. They're like, oh my God, you did all that? Like, how did you do all that? And I'm like, oh, you just do it a page at a time, you know? And that's, like, but for, for someone who has never done that, it's, they're like, oh, wow. They're, they're overwhelmed by the amount of work in it. And I, I guess, but you know, it's like, I mean, I loved reading that A Drifting Life, that Tatsumi uh, memoir. Love that book because it's so much about comics. It's just like so immersed in comics and the love of comics. But it's also that obsessional, that, the manga artists that that would die, like you know, just drawing themselves to death, like overwork and and you know, smoking too much and drinking too much coffee and everything. Um, it's kind of a, I guess I guess that 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 in a weird way that also appeals to me. That kind of I feel like I'm not working hard enough when I read that book. And this is cer- certainly something that applies to aspects of this book or the biography that you alluded to earlier. Is we do tend to romanticize not just workaholics but we kind of in a really dark way tend to romanticize people who basically drink themselves to death oh yeah definitely i i I, honest to god i i think this all the time uh i'm so struck by um memoirs of, of drinking where it's actually uh portrayed in a in a negative light you don't see people like you know, pissing their pants and, you know, in a, in a public place or something like that. It's little things like, Oh, they missed the kid's birthday party or because they were drunk and that. And it's like, you kind of feel sorry for them. And it, and it's not like as dark as it should be because it can be, it's a horrible thing. And I, and I, and I do think that there, it romanticizes it. A lot of addiction memoirs like drug addiction and, and alcohol addiction, they don't, I think that they, they do make it somewhat strangely appealing like romanticized yeah a person's family or a person's liver are kind of collateral right if if at the end of the day they produce something great to to a certain degree and certainly this is changing for the better but to a certain degree you're willing to forgive them for being a terrible person because like clearly all of that was required in order for them to make great art right which is not the, 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 you know the not nice people can make good art like you know it's like i don't know like 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 Orwell was said about Dali, like, you know, that in that essay about him, that, that you can hold two ideas in your mind at the same time, that Dali's a great artist and a, and a horrible human being. And it's like, and it could be conversely, it could be that someone could be a, a nice human being and, and also a, a good artist. It's possible to be both. I don't think that it's necessary. That tortured artist thing is kind of, 
I don't know. But then again, it's funny because when I look back and I look back at some of the work that I produced when I was in my darkest points in my life, those, those, that, I, that stuff, I'm like, wow, who, who is this guy? Like, I do a different kind of work, I guess. But it plumbed some depths of emotional work that I, I don't know that I'd be capable of now. And maybe that's because I'm very happy and content. I don't know. Or maybe it's not. I don't know. The cartoonist that you portray in the new book, the father of the narrator, you know, it sounds like to some degree, it's a character that is playing off, off of those impulses that you see and don't like in yourself you know is is he sort of like the logical conclusion of this terrible impulse to just kind of work yourself to death no i i i i mean there's certain elements in the in the i the father no i don't i don't relate to him at all myself like i just i just found him to be like like it'd be interesting to create a character who made this thing that's so beloved and everybody loves and he's not even that interesting like he's He's a mundane character. He's just, he's just selfish and, and brutal and mean. And, you know, he's not even interesting in his brutality. You know, he's just kind of mundane. Um, but the son, I think some of his bad aspects are like totally like, like uh, that scene where he's yelling about his partner taking his, his last fake beer. And, and I mean, that's like, I am, I am my greatest fault is, is a, impatience and and i i probably have barked at my partner like that like he's you know like oh my god did you do this and then she'd be like oh it's right here and you know and and i'm like and so there's i guess i played it up more than 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 in real life but like those are like you know you always you're always taking from your own experience to, to no matter what like when you're writing i mean i think everybody does that so but um the father yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't relate to him that much. No, you connect more closely to the son. You feel like he's. Oh yeah, yeah, a lot too. I mean, it's interesting. Like I thought, I hope that people will not be turned off that 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 they're both they're really not that lovable characters. Like I mean, um, they're you know, I mean, the the son is trying. He tries to change. He tries to learn something. But I don't know if he does. And I, but I think that's I I don't mind that. I I will I will I can watch a film with unpleasant characters and and still enjoy it. I don't have to relate to them on a on a level of like oh I, I that's that's how I would act in that situation. You know, like uh, I hope people will be okay with that. I do get the feeling that that's another thing that's changing, not necessarily for the better, is that people people can't enjoy like movies, for example, with unlikable characters in the way that I think they used to be able to, that, that they need to find there needs to be some redeeming quality or they don't necessarily feel that the story is worth telling. Yeah. That's, it's, that's strange to me. It's almost like, um, I don't know. It's, it's like, it's like not trusting the audience's maturity. Like I think that people can handle it. They, I think they can see a book and go like, I don't, I don't think that he's presenting this as good behavior. He's just present, they're presenting this as, as human behavior. And it's hopefully interesting. Like that's, I, I, I think you have to give an audience credit and that they, that they can handle that. I, I, I think you should, you should be producing that kind of work sometimes. The father who again is, you know, in some ways a central character or perhaps even the central character to the story is not the main character. And there's a reason why, you know, you decided to shift it to the son who, you know, like you said, is a, 
is a more likable character in that, like, at least he sees faults in himself and at least he is trying to change. Why does he become the central figure for the story? Because he's, like, dealing with more. Like, he's actually examining things and looking at life, and that's more interesting to me, whereas the father's just barreling along like he doesn't question. He's, you know, it's like, it's like I find anyone who's in a position of being revered and having power it's a dangerous thing and they they often become dicks like it's it's inevitable almost it's very hard i think for someone who's a celebrity or something to not become a dick because everyone around you is like going yeah right that's amazing and if, everything you say and everything you do and you're never you're never put called to task for anything so whereas the son is like you know he's dealing with like emotional hurt and stuff from his childhood and trying to be in a relationship and trying to work that relationship and unsuccessfully often. And, uh, but at least he's trying. I just find that more interesting than, than, than the thought, but you know, that's enough, that could have been a whole other take. Like, I mean that we just get the, the narrator's perspective on that, on the father. He could have a, and there's one point where he actually questions that he goes, he doesn't know what his father's relationship was like with his father. Like, you know, or his mother, you know, like he doesn't know that because he never asked him. There's an interesting point, and I don't know, I don't know if this qualifies as a, as a spoiler or not. Hopefully, you know, somebody listening 20 minutes in will have at least read most of the book. But there is a, I think perhaps the most in, interesting moment in the book comes when the main character realizes that his father, the famous cartoonist, the roles had shifted in, in the uh, cartoon characters that he was portraying. That he had always thought that the child character was a surrogate for himself, that the math changes a good deal if the father is drawing himself as a child. That's it. And that's, that was a realization that he has in the, in the middle of the book sort of, and I, and, or after in the second half of the book. And, and it's like, it's just, that was just like a realization that I had. It's funny. Like, um, like there's things that come up when you're writing a book that you don't plan. Uh, cause I, I operate on instinct, um, a lot. And, uh, so there was that, that notion came to me. Like, I was like, what if he's not writing about his own son? What if he's writing about his relationship with his father? And so, and that, so, you know, that goes into the story. And there was the other part where he's talking about how he doesn't, he doesn't have daddy issues or whatever. And, and then I realized at one point that his partner is James. It's the same name as his father. Like, and, uh, and it didn't occur to me when I wrote that, but it's like, you know, I added that in, I think as well into the storyline. Um, so I guess some of these things you just discover as you, as you go along, uh, writing a thing, they reveal themselves kind of, I don't know. It seems like that to me. Like I, I, things just like happen in this weird, uh, organic way. And I just trust instinct and I go with that. At what point in the process are you really open to making those kinds of changes? Oh, the whole time. Um, I, I even when you're drawing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny. Um, I was listening to uh, Breck Evans today. Uh, he was doing a live Instagram live on DNQ and he was talking about, what was the, what was the phrase he used? It was like, basically he said he, he'd hate to plan his work so much that he would just become his own illustrator. And I thought that's really interesting because that's what I do. Like I, I, I write and I, I think I'm a bit stronger of a writer than I am an artist. So I, I really work the writing and I, I, I'll spend a year writing a script and editing and I write longhand. Then I type in and then I do my edits and then I re-edit and I print it out and I, you know, then I break it down into, you know, storyboard it. And I, you know, in my nine panel grid and I, and I do that. So it's like, 
the I, I keep saying this, but it's like it really rings true to me. It's like um, Alfred Hitchcock said about his favorite part of the process of filmmaking was the writing and the storyboarding. He goes because the filming was almost a mechanical process. It was just you know following those things he'd already set up, and it's a, and and it's and it is like that for me. But I do edit. Um, more so now that I'm older, because I, I'm, I, I'm less satisfied with um, when I was younger, I would have let things go a weak panel drawing or, or something that didn't work. I would go, oh, that's good enough. But as I get older, I'm more fussy and I won't let things go. I'm a little more um, obsessive and I rework things and I add, I've added, I, I added a whole section at the end of that book that wasn't there because it wasn't right. It didn't feel right and it needed more. And, and, and I took out this other part and then, and added much more to it. So I do a lot of uh, editing through the whole process more so now that I'm older. Yeah. I look back at old stuff and the draw, I mean, I'm a weak drawer and sometimes the, the heads in my original, my early books, the heads are gargantuan. They wouldn't, a human body couldn't carry that head. And I sometimes when I would reprint those stories in other collections, I would shrink the heads because they were just ridiculously oversized. When you have a realization like the father being his own surrogate in a comic strip or the two names being the same, how much does that change the math? How much does that change the, the trajectory of the story that you were planning to tell? Uh, it, it changes a, a little, like um, not gigantically, Um I suppose if it was a giant realization that just didn't occur to you, then it could. But I, like I said, I, I, I work the writing so much that by the time I'm drawing, it's um, I've, I've hopefully thought of most big aspects of it. And it's just the smaller things that, that would, that wouldn't occur to me, but I'm open to like, if, if something would happen that I would, that I would say, I need to make a massive change, I would do it, you know? Because I want, I want it to be right. I, I just, I'm not, I'm never satisfied anymore with uh, if things are clunky. Because you know what? When, when they are, I don't look at my books after they're done much. Because you're tired of them, you're sick of looking at them. Um, but when I do, and it'll be those same things that will, a single word or a line or a, or a wrong panel drawn, those things will poke me in the eye every time. And it's so I, I, I just want to avoid that for future books I, I, I just really try and fix that before it, it's out there how different is a pre-planning process in writing a biography of a real existing person versus doing straight fiction yeah it's a it's um fiction is nice uh it, it was nice to return to it um it was a really cool experience doing the research for a biography um and i tried to be as accurate as possible um, I did, you know, a little, you know, kind of creative nonfiction, uh, merging, you know, characters that were similar, uh, you know, sure. like a little bit of fudging. And I, and I, I described that in the notes and that, um, but it's hard to write fiction because the story is there it's, and you can't change the narrative arc. You're stuck with what it is. And, and if you're do it, presenting it as like a, a narrative, like not like a non strictly nonfiction book, but like a, you're telling, I mean, it's a comic. I had to make it like a story that you could read. Um, so you are, the only tools you have are, um, you know, suppression and, uh, and, um, exemplify or what's the word I'm looking for. Um, 
like putting more ac uh, accent on certain elements. That's how you can affect the story to make it work as a as a uh, dramatic narrative. Heighten some aspects. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So that was that. So it was nice to return to fiction and to not have those restrictions. Like you can always make it go however you want, however your story needs to go. So that was refreshing. Um, doing the nonfiction was fun because it was like I was I I traveled. I went to North Carolina and met with you know Seabrook's son, and uh, he had a trunk of his papers, and I went through those and photos and you know articles of clothing from like when he was in the army and stuff. And, um, and, uh, that was amazing. And, uh, and I went to Oregon to the university of Oregon and went through Seabrook's, um, second wife, uh, Marjorie Worthington, who was a writer and she had donated her papers there. So I was had white gloves on and I was going through these papers and making notes and taking photos. And it was like, I was in, uh, you know, A.S. Byatt's possession, like, you know, these, uh, the nerdy kind of, uh, it was so outside of my experience. I'm not an academic. I, I didn't, I didn't go to university. So it was really intriguing thing to do. And I felt like it was out of my league a lot of the time. And, uh, yeah, it was interesting. Cause at the same time, my wife, who is an academic was writing her PhD thesis. And I was, I felt like I was this dumb weirdo aping her, like, you know, like she's, you know, doing the real thing and i was just goofing around like a comic book about someone's history during that process when was it clear that you wanted to make footnotes that you wanted to really break down the the line between fiction and nonfiction? just to be straightforward i think i think i always knew i would do that so i i kept i kept pretty good notes um uh where sources where i was getting stuff from uh i didn't do a proper bibliography i just did all of the books that i re referred to um but um but the notes, like, um, I guess I, I knew I would do that. Like, I, I, I love reading Chester Brown's notes. Like, and it's and every time I do notes in the back of a book, it's a little it's a little nod to Chester because he loves them so much. And uh, and uh, so, yeah, so I, I, I knew I would always do it. Um, so I did keep records the whole time. I tried to keep it real, like, so that I was had a record of where I was finding things and sourcing material there's a preface to this book that almost plays that role to some degree, that role of, <laughs> it's very interesting. And, and, and I'm trying to remember another book that I've seen this in, or at least another comic that I've seen this in where you're like, I'm trying to get out in front of this thing to let you know that I understand that this story that I'm telling is not wholly original. Yeah. That was what one of the, one of the early reviews of the book was like saying like that it was, they, they, that I was like positioning myself to just say like, I, I'm aware of this. Like I know I, uh, that these other books exist that have touched on similar themes. But when I started writing it, I didn't, I was not aware of that. I mean, it didn't, it didn't seem like the most original idea in the world. I figured there must've been stuff done, but I wasn't aware of them. I'd never come across them. So, so yeah, it was just like, yeah. And, and, and my ignorance of, of comics history, like it's a pretty basic thing. Like the, the Dennis, the menace story. And, and I guess at some level, I, I, I mean, I had heard it, but it didn't, it didn't retain that with me, or maybe it did. And in the you know, lower part of my psyche, but they're, they're, it's a very different story than that. But anyway, when Peter Bag was, we were at this book event together and, and we were hanging out and he told me that and he goes, you're writing Dennis the Menace. That's Dennis the Menace. And I'm like, oh shit, no, it's not Dennis the Menace. Anyway. So yeah, I just thought it was smart to present that and let people know like that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that and incorporated into the story. Like it, because it, it made sense. It was a juxtaposition like him 
about it like and his dad knowing uh catch him in that so that is the the absolutely organic way to do it and you did it in the book there is a self-awareness in the book that you know and in a way the real characters and the fictional characters in the book do kind of run parallel and they both exist in this universe um obviously you're poking fun at yourself in the preface at the end of the preface when you like peggy um, and Julia make an appearance in there where they're like actually like dragging you off the panel. You know, were, were, I, were you worried that doing that was maybe a bad impulse to have that at the, the top of the book? No, I, I, I'm a big one for transparency. So I was just like, it, I felt like I, I wanted to just uh, address it in like in, a, in an introduction. Just, and I like, I, I kind of like introductions. Like um, I just read Glenn Head's new book, uh, Chartwell Manor. It's, it's it's brilliant and it's it's dark and hard to read like uh it's uh but he writes a an introduction just stating what he was trying to do with it like it's trying to be as completely honest as possible and and it's going to be hard for a lot of people to read and uh he doesn't want to upset, upset people but he, he wanted to do it and he needed to do it so i think it's good to just like be straightforward with things so i and i do it in a goofy manner because that's the way i do things so i just put it out there but yeah i i i mean it's funny i i'm lucky i i i i always worry you know because i'm old and i'm you know like uh i'm old i'm an old white guy i'm an old straight white guy and, and i'm just worried like like that people are going to be annoyed by me and 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 uh so um i've been very lucky with reviews people are kind to me in reviews and and i mean this book is about old rich white people and it's like so i address that in the story as well like i just to to i am aware that it's that you know but it's but it's the thing i, I was writing at the time i i don't know i find it hard to write about politics and 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 things that i'm passionate about like i mean i'm a i'm a long time you know socialist and I, I, and i i i love and i admire people that can write like stuff on the nib and other just people that are able to write passionate like stuff about politics like eleanor davis like the the things she can do uh blows my mind and i can't do it when i try and write about stuff i'm so angry about it that it's just a boring angry screed like there's no there's no joy in it there's no um there's nothing positive in it it's just i just i'm too angry about the political situation in the world to write about it well and, and I, I admire people that can like tom tomorrow like the, the, those kind of guys like i don't i Ruben bowling these people i and matt bores all these people they they can do it so well and i cannot so i do what i do a lot of them or most of them you know do eventually burn out i mean i, I don't know like exactly what's happening with matt right now but matt has obviously stepped away from it and oh, i'm trying to remember his name there is a cartoonist like 10 years ago who had a political book on fanographics and was well known for it and just had to, um, used to wear suits all over the place. You know what I'm talking about? Um, Tim Kreider. Yeah. I mean, Matt Boris is obviously at least like temporarily so away from it. And Tim Kreider obviously felt the need to, and that was well before, you know, all the Trump stuff was happening here. Obviously Tom tomorrow, Ruben Bowling. I mean, they're kind of rare breeds in that respect is I, I don't think that even if you're very good at it and can do it for a while, I just, I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think it's a healthy way for people to go to life. It's like, it's like immersing yourself in, in a, in a bath of acid every day. And like, um, if you're, if you have a big heart, if you, and obviously people that are drawn to that kind of, you know, critiquing politics, 
do. Like they care about justice. They care about people. Um, it's got to be hard on you. Like, uh, I mean, I know, like I, 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 I've always been a, you know, ranting about politics. I, I, I believe that's what poisoned my first marriage initially. She had an affair on me, so that, that ultimately killed it. But it was like, I was, I, 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 it took me years to come to the point where I was like, you know, maybe you had some part in that too, Joe, like by being hard to live with because I was ranting about uh, politics all the time and I was so angry about the, the world and disappointed by uh, humanity. Um, so I try not to be so much that and I probably would be unhealthy for me to, to do that kind of stuff because I think it would, yeah, it would be hard. I can see people burning out and taking a break from it. There's a reason, I, I think there's a reason why, you know, Tom, for example, is not doing graphic novels. <laughs> there's a reason why he's doing these as strips, sitting down and trying to do a two, 300 page book about it and being in that mind state for that long would drive you absolutely crazy. There, there's, uh, who's that other one, Fantagraphics, Mr. Fish? Mr. Fish, yeah. He did the Ralph Nader book recently. Yeah, the work that they do is amazing. Like, uh, very in, in, insightful and beautifully drawn. And yeah, I don't know. I, I have great respect for the people that can do it. I just can't. Not political, but like you're very clearly drawn to tragic figures to some degree. I mean, that's certainly a through line through a lot of your work. Yeah. I don't know why that is. It's, it's been my whole life. Um, it's funny, like I, yeah, like I mean, I love depressing movies. That's my go-to. Like the sadder it is, the better. And just, yeah, um, I don't know why. I'm not a tragic figure myself. Like I, I'm lucky. I've had a, you know, um, largely, you know, straight, easy life. I don't. That's, that's not true. Everybody has something, you know. I got, I got married when I was 17, you know, and I worked in a factory and. And went to school, finished high school during the day and worked in a factory at night. Um, you know, so I guess, the, you know, I, sure, we all have our little hardships. And, yeah. What I think it is and, and what I find with myself is, this is especially, for whatever reason, this is especially the case when I have musicians on the show. I would rather talk to a musician in their 70s who has seen some shit you know, instead of like some like 19 year old who is just about to, you know, release the first record and it's on EMI and like, you know, nowhere to go but up. I just think that I think stories are more interesting when people have been through stuff. And and I think that that this that this is the case with a tragic figure. I mean, like, for example, there have been cases I do like reading biographies and there have been cases with like that, you know, that three volume Churchill biography where I only read the last volume, because to me, that is the most interesting part of a person's story. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I, I think that's that's true a lot of what you say there. Like, I think I say that there are people that you will meet in life and they operate at a different level because of the shit that they've been through. Um, they they can cut through things and they they see differently and they're in, they can understand people better sometimes. Like sometimes. Sometimes things damage people and it doesn't make them operate better in the world or, or, or uh, be more insightful or anything. But sometimes... Yes, I think people that have been through things, hard things, um, they operate at a different level. And I, I, I find, um, I, I always find when you meet people like that, you, you can, you can sense it in them, something about them. Especially if you're in, you're in trouble with something, the way that they speak to you and they can offer advice uh, or just listen, uh, it's, it's. You can tell that they've been through something big. There was a quote uh, that I read in one of your interviews that I thought was 
super interesting and I, you know, and I, and I wish that the interviewer had like pulled it out a little bit more. So I'm going to pull it out a little bit more here because I think this is one very essential to the book. And I, and I think it was perhaps said in a context, you know, where it relates to your own life, but you said parenting is always doomed to failure. Mm. Yeah. Well, true. I mean, um, I have like three kids. I have two older girls from my first marriage. They're in their thirties. Uh, cause I, you know, I, like I said, I started when I was 17. Um, and then I've got a soon to be 16 year old and they're all amazing kids. They're all like, you know, grade A student, honor roll students. They all were. And, uh, uh, but like, you know, I know with my girls, with the divorce, when the divorce happened, yeah, sh- shit went down. That was not cool. Like basically two parents that had been perfect, like helicopter parents like uh basically went bananas and and were in their own world of of bullshit and um so i carried that around a lot i feel i i the 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 weight of that is like uh my daughters are always like oh shut up we're fine you know but they i know that they they went through a lot of stuff um and that was all because of that, you know, parental failure. Like, so, so I've tried really hard not to, uh, bungle things in, in with my son. Like it's to try and keep him, him protected. And with my girls, I just try and, I try and bring it up. I, I, I like to talk about things. Like I'm a, I'm a person that I think you got to say things out loud. It's important to say things out loud, um, make statements of things that you've done, take responsibility for uh, your actions. It's important to the people that have been affected by them. So, I yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I carry a lot of, and some of things never can be resolved. You can live with things, but you can't resolve them. Like they're just you know you 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 neglected to be a good parent, and even if you realized it and came back and took over again, it's a little too late if you leave it for a long time. You know. Um, so those are. Oh God. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a good point. I mean, this is why I'm drawn to tragic figures. I mean, we all have our tra- tragedies, like, you know, and, and, and you live with them and you live with your flaws and your mistakes. And that's all you can do is live with them and try and do better and try and make reparations for the, the failures. There's an interesting thing at play here. You know, it's something that, that I've thought about and, um, you know, I think it's, it's something that is expressed in fiction in a lot of places because it is sort of a universal concept. The main character in this book is somebody in his, what would you say, like late middle age, maybe? Is that, or, or even later? I imagine about like my age, like 55. And and he's dealing with a very elderly parent. And, and I think that maybe not necessarily spoken out loud, but there is a tension around the question of at what point in your life do you just like stop blaming your parents for fucking you up, you know, and, and can, and can, can you? Yeah, I think I, yeah, I think people, it's healthy to do because you can't change it anyway. So you might as well accept and and move on. And it's funny, like, I mean, with, with me, it's the opposite. Like I'm going to my kids and I'm like, I'm like, I'm I'm sorry. You know, and I'm trying to like talk it out and they're like, we're fine. It's fine. Just like get on with your life. But to me, it's important to, it's important to address and it's important to talk about. And, uh, he, he just, he can't get over it. And and it's like, maybe because he's had an easy spoiled life, you know, like he's, so he obsesses about 
these things, whereas someone who had other bigger problems wouldn't obsess about them. But again, it's like I say, I think I say in the book, like even small problems and first world problems are their problems. You know, you have to deal with them. Otherwise, they will mess up every aspect of your life. So, yeah, um, I don't think he ever gets over anything, really, with his, with his dad. He tries to work it out, but I don't think. But some things don't get resolved, right? Like, there's no clear for some things. It's just they are what they are. There is a question of, of how much of that poor parenting was imagined or yeah. almost projected. Mm-hmm. It's it's possible that that he's just yeah it might be over over the top like uh, but then his mother does co- corroborate some of that right yeah she, she does I think I think she kind of plays both sides of the fence on that question yeah. yeah I guess I I like her I think she's an interesting character she's kind of cold but she's also um she's kind of in his in his corner more more so than the father and she is operating on a a bit more of an emotional level but not not much because of her own upbringing which was a cold kind of upbringing she didn't have the the skills to 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 be a, a warm human being you know so but she does good within her limited abilities she would be the most interesting character i think to like continue on to see what happens to her because she does she states that there were just ways that things were done back then that you know like a woman supported her man and and it's clear they, he alludes to this a little bit, and there are some glimpses of this, but like, it's clear that after an entire lifetime of being married to a terrible person, that she's really finally starting to come out of her shell. Yeah, she was. Yeah, and I wanted to show that kind of like you know, like that. Uh, I mean, I think she she operated and did her thing, but she still, for some reason, stayed with him, and for whatever reason, and she tries to uh, explain to herself or justify that why. Because that's what people did, and money, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think as soon as he's dead, she can't fake mourning, really, which is kind of interesting to me. I think it's. I don't. I don't. I always hate when someone dies and they instantly become like this sainted figure. I think it's good to be realistic about what people were like. So yeah, I. 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 I think she's just. Uh, yeah. Again, uh, Pearl was an interesting character. I really liked writing her, and I. I you referenced the schultz book in in there and i seem like you like every other person remotely interested in comics read the schultz book like right when it was published and and there and there was a there was a big question around that around you know not only like how much of this was actually true and accurate to his character but uh whether or not publishing a book like that does a disservice to the legacy of this artist i don't think it's a disservice i think the truth is always of service you know like i think it's important um i think everybody still knows that he was a uh uh kind and not like decent father like you know i i do think he was probably very flawed and he had probably had a lot of flaws and those came out in the book um i don't think he was as maybe as cold as as michaelis portrayed him as but maybe he was uh, the kids didn't seem to think so, and they were outraged by that. He was cold with his first wife, uh, but they weren't—they weren't a good match, like you know. And when he found his match with Jeannie, like like you could see that they were really, really in love. Like, and I mean, sometimes people are are poor matches, and they bring out the worst elements in each other. And then, if you're lucky enough to find the right person, and they actually bring out the good in you and you bring out the good in them. Well, like how lucky is that? Joe, it, it sounds like you may be speaking from experience here. 
<laughs> I am. I'm. I'm like this is like my 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 wife Diane. Like she's like patient, amazing, wise person, and and she she continually laughs at my jokes, and like we we enjoy each other's company. Like it's like, and we like the same things. We're we're incredibly lucky. Um, yeah, I I I constantly. Uh, instead of complaining about little things, I am constantly trying to be grateful, like just for like how friggin' lucky I am. Like that's, and I never thought I could be happy. That was the other thing when I was a post, even during my divorce, long it was long because I stayed. We we our marriage was over, and we stayed together for like five years almost, just because the kids were young, to try and make things normal, and not a good plan. But I thought. I was I was a depressed and drunk and suicidal person for many years, and I thought I could never ever be happy again. And you can, like, it's possible. And and I can't even. I re I was revisiting my journals from uh, those years. I don't even recognize that person. Like that's how different you can you can be. Like it's possible. Um, so I'm lucky enough to have come out of like. <sighs> black dark places and i don't know I, I i think i'm so lucky where i'm at in life right now that like i can be worried about something and i'll lie my head on the pillow and i'm like oh god what am i gonna call and i i before i even finish the worry i'm asleep like i'm lucky i'm a lucky bloody person so we talked about this a little bit earlier you know about whether but i i think misconception that you have to suffer to some degree in order to make great art um at these different points in your life, you know, during your ups and downs, do you think that you made your best work when you were your happiest? Mm, uh, different. Um, I, I think my like saddest stuff, the, um, the short story collections, the first two books I did, that was written and drawn in absolute darkest period of my life. And I, I still, when I think about those stories, like they're, I don't know, like people have written to me and, and they've said like how moving they were. They, they thought they were all written by the person that it actually happened to. So I don't know, maybe because I was in this like deep emotional place, I was able to get inside the minds of those characters somehow and, and, and express things differently. But I don't know. I, I think I don't know. As you get older, it's funny. Like you, I don't know. It's like a not to say you're an old hack or something, but I'm. I'm. I may have done like deeper emotional content in those books, but I'm. Con I'm convinced that I'm doing better work. Like in a in the, the scope of the work. Like it's. Um, like I. I feel like confident in my my abilities now. As at this stage of my my career, that I could take. You could throw anything at me and say, make this, make this story. And I could sit down and I could make a really good functional story about that. And maybe I couldn't have done that when I was younger. I would have had to do exactly what I wanted to do, you know? So I'm more confident in my uh, abilities in general as I'm, old, as I'm happier and older. But um, I think those were deeply emotional times in the work showed that. You know, as somebody who is drawn to flawed characters, it sounds like when you were at your most flawed or, you know, at your most depressed or vulnerable that you were almost able to 
uh, inhabit the characters in the in a way that you can't now. And and one of the things I was curious about in this book is you do draw yourself. You know, you do like you you kind of you are a framing device listening to a podcast interview with the artist. And I mean, ultimately beyond just sort of the very simple way of framing it, is that a way of distancing yourself from these characters? Possibly. I never thought of it. Um, I just thought I listened to a lot of podcasts and that. So it just seemed like a logical thing to an intro to it and introduce the character because he's on the podcast. You know, who knows? Like that's possible deeply, you know, and like, as I say, I operate on instinct a lot. Um, so it's possible that that was some deep level of thinking, but definitely not consciously. No, no, I couldn't take credit that no so there's two things happening there that you're you're doing the framing and like very clearly say this guy sounds like an asshole yeah at the top of the book <laughs> that never occurred to me i'm saying my own character sounds like an asshole it's true. i don't know if it's like almost a way of easing into the character or giving people some preface that they will be dealing with a lot of intentionally or unintentionally bad actors that's that's fascinating brian that's really good <laughs> That's amazing that that didn't occur to me that I'm like actually saying that. I guess that is. That's me distancing myself or or just setting the tone like this is what you're going to be dealing with. Yeah. But didn't consciously occur to me. No. Couldn't take credit for that. There's sometimes you'll read reviews of your work and they're and they attach like really amazing structure. And I'm like, Jesus, I wish I was that smart to like have written that uh, but it's but that's people's interpretation. And I love I love reading reviews. Sometimes I enjoy reviews of books and movies more than I enjoy the books or the movies. Like if it's a really good reviewer. So yeah, I I, I guess. But it's interesting what people will, will their insight they'll bring to it. The third thing, and this is just occurring to me as I'm saying this, you know, because I, I am somebody who podcasts and I am somebody who talks to artists a lot. And I really like the format because it gives you a long form conversation in a way that you couldn't, you know, and more traditional formats but even in spite of that if the person is having a bad day or if they don't like the particular subject matter it is very easy for somebody to come across as a one-dimensional asshole and it sounds like it feels to me you know reading the book that the book is a way of sort of being like yeah this guy kind of is an asshole but like let's Let's explode that a little bit and let's explore how this person developed. Yeah. I think also it's like um, the, the me, the, the me character that's listening to him. He's in love with this fictional cartoonist and I'm protective of people that I love. Like, like when people talk shit about Schultz, when I read that Michaela's biography, I was pissed at like, I was like, I didn't like that he was saying anything bad about him. So I, I could understand his kids being pissed and, and Gene Schultz being pissed about it. Um, so, yeah, I think it, that, that was also just partly that, like that he's a fanboy and he doesn't like the kids bad-mouthing his hero. Like if if one of the, some, you know, kid of Schultz went out and bad-mouthed Schultz, I would be, at first I would be pissed and then I would be like, oh, maybe I should listen to this. Maybe it's true. Mm-hmm. 